Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests will discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Uh, This show, Dr. Doctor, is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members, like Chris and me, are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in both the science and practice of medicine. And Tom, it's important to point out the views expressed on our show, Dr. Doctor, do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. And for our listeners today, we're trying something a little bit different. We're going to do a show based on two different guests from different countries that have different sets of laws uh, around a single topic. Uh, We're going to talk about something called voluntary euthanasia. It's It's a new term, and our critical care physicians will join us from Toronto and from Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, For our medical news item today, we're going to briefly discuss the editorial that actually gave us the idea for today's pair of interviews from two countries with two different sets of laws. Take it away, Tom. Yeah. In early September, there was an article brought to my attention from the New England Journal of Medicine called Voluntary Euthanasia Implications for organ donation. What a bizarre combination of words and concepts. Uh, That's why I wondered, what is this? And when I talked to people who are critical care physicians, they said it's important that that more lay people uh, get to know about what's going on. You know, I get this connection between these two concepts, but I'll have to admit until I saw this, I never put them together. No. And, you know, I always assumed that euthanasia would be would be voluntary, but I guess there is involuntary euthanasia, but uh, that's that's called murder. <laughs> I, I guess voluntary euthanasia would be murder. And I, I have to tell you, just to show how thankfully naive my 12-year-old boys are, uh, we were watching an episode of a show that brought up the topic euthanasia. And when my son, when my son saw it, he said, oh, I always ta- thought they were talking about youth in Asia. Asia. Yeah, young Chinese kids. And sadly, I had to open his eyes that, no, there is something much more nefarious than than children in China. In fact, I don't suspect that children in China are particularly nefarious, at least any more than my children have been. <laughs> so anyway, uh, the Canadian government decriminalized medical assistance in dying, M-A-I-D, or MAID, uh, back in 2015 for patients with, quote, grievous and irremediable, irremediable, is that a word? Suffering, whatever that means. Uh, It's very subjective. And then in 2016, the Canadian government passed laws permitting physicians to participate in either physician-assisted suicide. That's where you give somebody a medicine, just go away somewhere else and do yourself in with these medicines that'll kill you, or voluntary euthanasia, where the physician will kill you in the hospital so you don't have to give yourself the medicine. Yeah, the big difference there, the physician's providing the means right. in one and actually doing the act in the other. Right. Or, or giving you the knife or stabbing you with the knife. Precisely. So um, the author of this article says that this concept of voluntary euthanasia, where you choose to have a physician you know, put you down like uh, Fluffy at the vet's office, uh, would give a new pathway for better and more organs for donation. Isn't that pause worthy? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> yes, it is pause worthy. Currently, the law in most of the so-called civilized world uh, recognizes the dead donor rule. You cannot donate an organ until you are dead. Defined as usually pulseless, no pulse, no heartbeat for two to 10 minutes. Then they can start harvesting organs. With the new laws, though, if they are passed, because right now the laws do not account for this concept. It would mean that a patient could be kept alive in an operating room, and with the patient's supposed consent, their organs would be removed while they're on the operating room table being kept alive so that the cause of death would become organ removal. You know, some of our listeners, our astute listeners, might realize or remember that we talked about uh, brain death and organ donation that happens in America. We've talked about some of the sticky issues there yes. in previous episodes. This takes it orders of magnitude further. This, oh, my. This patient is fully alive, uh, and then their organs are taken from them under anesthesia. Exactly. And so it removes the patient 
from their loved ones that they might want to share their last moments with uh, into a very cold, sterile environment, but supposedly with the idea that they're being more generous with themselves so that others may live. I will die so that others may live. Now, interestingly, the authors point out there could be some problems with this. Yeah, for, for <laughs> physicians, for nurses. and Who might it, not like this idea. And I thought they were astute enough to figure out that patient recipients might not want to receive an organ from someone like that. Right. So we're going to talk about this concept with two different doctors. First, our Canadian colleague, Dr. Ewan Goliger from Toronto, and then Dr. Wes Ely from Nashville. But before we go to our break... Uh, before we go to our break... We have the medical, medical trivia, trivia question, question of, of the, the day. Dun-dun-dun. <laughs> okay, so short question. Name the second disease, which would be after smallpox the first disease, likely to be eradicated from the planet. Smallpox has been eradicated through human efforts. Which of these five diseases will most likely be the second disease to be eradicated from the third rock from the sun? Will it be A, measles, B, mumps, C, rubella, D, polio, or E, guinea worm disease? And for bonus points, how has this disease been nearly eliminated? Chris and I are Doctor and Doctor, and we'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to Doctor Doctor. We have with us today from north of the American border, Doctor Ewan Gallagher. Uh, Ewan is a critical care pulmonary care physician in Toronto at Toronto General Hospital, where he's both an assistant professor and a clinician scientist. He has a PhD in physiology, so he is a, a double doctor. He's he a did, doctor, doctor. Yeah, himself, mm. yes. So he does research related to uh, mechanisms of injury from mechanical ventilation, These, you know, the breathing machine we call, keep hearing about in various scenarios. But anyway... He is going to give us some insights into how euthanasia and this concept of voluntary euthanasia is viewed in Canada. Ewan, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Tom, thank you so much for having me on the show. Oh, it's wonderful. Now, why in the land of nice, in the land of Canada, is euthanasia such a compelling thing for Canadian citizens, even more so maybe than American citizens? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Tom. And I have to say, when uh, there was a sort of wave of moral change in, say, three to four years ago, when attitudes, both outside and inside the profession, seemed to dramatically change, I found myself wondering the same thing. And I, I don't know if it's more compelling for Canadians than Americans in general, but, but I think uh, for Canadians, it's it's this idea of being able to really take control of your death. I think people are scared of dying. They're afraid of the pain and they're especially afraid of the loss of autonomy. You know, our culture really seems to prize autonomy above everything else. And so for people who've been in complete control of their lives for a long time and maybe even took pride in that and valued that as something central to their quality of life, you know, the notion that there's a period of time where you lose autonomy and you're dependent on others or that you wouldn't be in full control is, uh, I think, really frightening to people. And, and euthanasia kind of gives you, restores control over the dying process in, in some respect. And so I think that's why, why uh, up here in the land of nice, as you say, people actually think it's kind and compassionate to deliberately cause the death of patients when they ask you to help them die. Now, Ewan, would you say this this uh, emphasis on autonomy that you're describing, do you find that's a Canadian cultural feature? Um, or do you think that's more just a cultural sign of the times in general? Uh, I don't think it's specific to Canada. I think, uh, although it, in some ways uh, it's... Uh, I would say it's a hallmark of a kind of increasing secularization of mm. ethics and social morality in general. I, I mean, for seculars, it's really a struggle to identify a kind of consistent, coherent, transcendent moral framework. And I think people seize on this value of autonomy as uh, as a kind of solution to the problem of, of moral values. Basically, everyone 
gets to create or generate their own moral framework and live according to their own principles. I would say, just lo- actually reading the literature just in JAMA this week, in, in, the, in the American literature, there was a, a paper describing how medicine needs to shift in light of increasing emphasis on patient autonomy. So I don't know that uh, Canada and America are so far apart, to be honest. Interesting. You know, I was paying attention to that great repository of knowledge called YouTube recently, and I was listening to a speaker, and he said something along the lines of, it's not about life, it's about quality of life. Wow. And, you know, this idea that life without the ultimate autonomy, which I think they would use as a surrogate for quality, is somehow less worth living. Um, It's really disturbing to think, but it's a, I mean, it is kind of the proverbial slippery slope, it seems, from an argument standpoint. Ewan, can you give us, and our listeners in particular, who agree with us that euthanasia is just inherently wrong, can you give them a non-religious argument as to why euthanasia is a bad idea? (laughs) You know, people always ask me uh, that question, and I... I, at one level, the answer is yes, absolutely. Uh, if you know, the question is, what is the fundamental value that makes medicine good? What makes the patient matter? And even you can ask, why does autonomy matter? Why why should we respect patient autonomy? Good point. And I think that the the only answer really is that the patient themselves is inherently valuable, and when you when you honor autonomy by taking the patient's life, you're destroying the patient themselves. You're not showing respect for autonomy by destroying the autonomous um, the autonomous patient. So throwing so out the baby it, with the bathwater. Sort of, yeah, exactly. That's a very good way of putting it. It, it really makes no sense. But uh, at the same time, to be honest with you, I'm also increasingly appreciative of the fact that our basic way of looking at the world, that the fundamental values that we hold inevitably influence what we think matters, you know, why you and I might prize the sanctity of life over the sanctity of autonomy, whereas others might not. And I think ultimately that's rooted in worldview, and uh, you can call worldview a kind of religion, but basically this means that everybody's religious, whether you're sure. <sighs> Christian or Muslim or atheist. At root, these are kind of quasi-religious beliefs driving your views of of all these kinds of medical ethical issues. Have you ever seen voluntary euthanasia take place in a Canadian hospital or know, you know, secondhand of any episodes? Uh, I've never been uh, present for, for, uh, for euthanasia. I, I don't think I could be like, I just, it would right. be too, too disturbing. Uh, but I certainly have been aware of, of, uh, times and places where it's been scheduled or planned. Um, in fact, some of my colleagues uh, at a hospital in Toronto wrote uh, in great detail describing their experience witnessing a case of euthanasia uh, in JAMA Internal Medicine some, uh, a little while ago. Um, so, yeah, no, we, it, it goes on for sure. I don't know exact numbers or frequencies in my hospital. I do know occasionally because I look after patients who are um, post-transplant uh, that sometimes we we get word that there may become organs available because there's a plan for uh, organ retrieval after mm-hmm. euthanasia, which is something that's going on. So, yeah, we ha- I have the sense that it's going on and it's kind of vaguely disturbing, but certainly no actual presence or involvement. You know, if we try to put ourselves in the mindset of those who would be arguing in favor of this, um, I guess the idea, would you say that by uh, by euthanasia, we're preventing suffering? And then when I hear myself say that, I think, well, we're not preventing suffering from the sufferer because they're dead. They, they, they can't not suffer anymore. They no longer exist. Would, would those who are in favor of this argue, well, you're presenting, you're preventing suffering for the greater the greater group or the larger group of society by eliminating that person's suffering, you've, you've done a good. Is, is that part of the mindset? Yeah. I, I mean, the notion that, that euthanasia is an act of compassion is absolutely central to the rationale for it. And it would in fact hold that you're relieving suffering for the sufferer because uh, on their view, they basically blindly assume, I think some notion of what it's like to be dead. I think many mm-hmm. of them, assume the basic secular notion that 
when you die, you no longer exist or have any conscious experience of any kind. Mm. And so consequently, they think that on you, you can make some kind of calculation, you can weigh up what it's like to stay alive and what it's like to be dead, and then decide that you're better off dead. And accordingly, euthanasia is an act of compassion. So they're assuming, they're assuming more than you can really know, because they Absolutely. don't know for sure that the person's suffering <laughs> has ended. It yeah. may not have. It may Absolutely. have gotten worse. Exactly. Euthanasia is an act of blind faith in secularism. Blind this is faith. What, I, yes. what, it, what I mean when I say that it's a kind of quasi-religious act, a sort of physician as priest ushering someone Ooh. In, in, out, out of Ooh. life. You know, it's, uh, it's a very strange, the more you think about it, I, I also like to compare euthanasia to seeing a patient in clinic, uh, giving them uh, a new drug that you have no idea how it works, and then telling them that you never need to follow up with them. Oh, <laughs> oh, that is such a good point. These are excellent discussion points. Now, right now, can voluntary euthanasia take place in Canada? That, yes. Yes. But yes. voluntary euthanasia for organ donation, the way that the New England Journal talked about it, cannot. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. So the, the issue is that the brain dead, or the, rather the dead donor rule, has not yet been overturned. So patients still have to be pronounced dead before organs can be retrieved. Do you see those laws being changed soon so that that might happen? I would not be surprised. I don't know how much momentum there would be. And I think uh, from an organ donation system standpoint, there's always the fear that when you when you do these things, you undermine the general public trust in the system because people don't really understand everything that's engaged. But that being said, I, I, I have a sense that amongst many of my colleagues who find euthanasia morally acceptable, they would be quite willing to, to overturn the dead donor rule because the truth is, once you accept the notion that you can do good by intentionally causing death, insisting that a patient has to be dead before you retrieve their organs really doesn't make any sense anymore. So this is one of the ways in which there's a logical slippery slope attached to euthanasia because it permits things that prior to uh, the acceptance of euthanasia would have seemed absolutely morally heinous. What do you what are your greatest fears for patients as the slippery slope is slid down upon? Well, I I would say that um, my greatest fear, uh, the thing that I'm most sorrowful about is is the loss of the role of our profession in assuring people that li- their lives matter and are significant, even when they feel that they aren't. Mm. Ah. You know, people, you know, our, our patients often suffer so significantly. Many of them are lonely, um, socially marginalized. And, you know, this is traditionally one of the beautiful roles of a physician to step into the gap to assure patients that they matter, that they're significant, and when you basically offer to end someone's life, you're basically agreeing with them. Yeah, you're right. Your life isn't worth living. And I think the loss of that message is going to be profoundly painful for many in our society. And so as a physician, you are implicitly or explicitly increasing the patient's suffering when you are reaffirming their worthlessness, except for their organs. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm not sure that that's necessarily the actual experience. I mean, many patients describe um, a sense of relief that 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 they're um, at the restoration of control over the dying process. But I think, as a whole, the, the message that our profession communicates to society changes substantially once you accept that you can do someone good by ending their life. Because all of the norms really are thrown out. I'm I'm thinking of the patient who's about to have elective surgery. You'd say, no, no, I want to make sure the paperwork, there's no mistakes, right? I I want to live. (laughs) Don't get me on the wrong list. I want to be on the live list. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I I fear, you know, honestly, I worry. And I think I would say already in society, I, I don't know that specifically related to the legalization of euthanasia, is a slowly eroding public trust in in the profession. I don't know if you 
that that's your experience. Certainly in the ICU with end of life decision making, I think one of the hardest things is is to is is to build trust in the relationship between physician and patient and substitute decision maker. And I think that's getting more and more difficult as time goes on. And even though I think those of my colleagues who administer euthanasia are well, honestly well-intentioned, they honestly think under their set of views that they're doing good. Ultimately, when everyone out there knows that their doctor is willing to end their life, it's it's going to have an eroding effect on, on public trust. Yeah, I would have to agree. You know, I, I think of the concept of it. We're not obligated to render care that we think is wrong or futile. The, the patient whose leg hurts and they demand that we amputate their leg, we're, we're not obligated to do that. In fact, we wouldn't do that. But this idea of voluntary euthanasia seems to turn all of those assumptions upside down and that anything yeah. anything goes, anything's fair game. If it's yeah. if it's consistent with the patient's wishes or their expressed wishes. Yeah. No, you and yeah. some people will say that euthanasia is no different than if you, you know, withhold certain types of medical treatments like mechanical ventilation. Mm-hmm. How do you respond mm-hmm. to people who bring up that argument? Yeah, that's a really important question, and and it's so important because, in fact, many people who argued for the legalization of euthanasia, including lawyers and philosophers pointed to withholding or withdrawing life support as as essentially already a legalized form of euthanasia. Wow. And, you know, and that's really important in my line of work because I withhold or withdraw life support all the time. Mm-hmm. And so I have to ask myself, am I, am I, am I basically practicing euthanasia? But I've, I've reflected on that a lot and, in fact, written about it um, in the academic literature. And I, I think you can draw a very clear distinction between withholding, withdrawing life support where you merely foresee that the patient will die. When I withhold or withdraw life support, I'm not trying to cause their death. I'm merely foreseeing that it will happen. I'm simply accepting the futility of these ongoing therapies. Whereas in euthanasia, you're intentionally or deliberately aiming at the death of the patient, which is, uh, you know, where the bright, the ethical bright line get, has to get drawn, basically. So, it, you know, it, it's really important to communicate about these things clearly with, especially with the general public, because they're trying to wrap their heads around uh, these issues. And, and in my view, withholding withdrawing life support is very different than euthanasia. It's interesting. It's, it's, it involves this principle of, uh, of double effect in a way, doesn't it? So we can give okay. pain medication that could suppress a patient's breathing, but our goal is to treat their pain. Our the unintended consequence is if we gave them too much of that, they would no longer breathe and, and could, in fact, expire. But as you point out, our goal is not to cause their death. That's what I think is exactly. what I think that's what's so hard to accept about this idea. The goal is, in fact, explicitly to cause the death. Exactly. Exactly. If somebody asks you the question, should I be an organ donor? How do you answer that? And is there any ramifications for the way that uh, voluntary euthanasia might affect organ donation in the future? Well, if anybody ever asked me if they should be an organ donor, I always encourage them to consider it because, especially as a physician who cares for patients after transplantation, it really can dramatically transform people's lives with chronic lung disease or heart disease or liver disease and so on. So Organ donation is a good thing, and certainly we do not want these kind of uh, on-the-edge debates about dead donor rule, et cetera, undermining you know, the, our society's commitment to doing good through organ donation. So I guess yeah, one of the fears is that you know, if people think, well, now we're just using people for their organs, that, uh, that that could lead to some undermining of trust in the organ donation system. I don't think those fears are warranted or justified at this point, honestly. But uh, nevertheless, you could see how that, that's a potential consequence. What final thoughts would you like to leave with listeners? What is most important for them to know about the discussion of voluntary euthanasia and, and organ donation, that linkage? Mm. Well, I would probably, to be honest with you, the most important concept that I've come to see through all of my experience around this is that when you shift to making patient autonomy ultimate, it's clearly extremely important, 
But when you make it ultimate, it really changes the meaning of medicine. You know, doctors stop being people who try to do patients good and now simply do what patients want. So the vending machine model. uh, (laughs) Exactly. You're, You're a glorified technician. And, and so that has all kinds of implications for how it changes medicine. And in Ontario, um, we're actually required to refer patients for euthanasia if they request it. And uh, so many of us who absolutely would not be prepared to do that have filed suit and there's ongoing legal processes around this. But if you really believe that patient autonomy is ultimate, then, you know, you're, you ought to provide a referral even if you object to something. I mean, you know, so for, for really our... Have Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say for our North Amer- American listeners, just that idea is really important that not only is this a law, but the next step is physicians are required to participate in the law by virtue yeah, of exactly. your of your licensure. Um, that, that's yeah. another step. Yeah, exactly. So, it, it, so we really have to communicate really clearly about our whole ethical framework and why we want to honor patient autonomy, but don't necessarily want to make it ultimate in the way that some are trying to. Ewan, thank you so much for being with Dr. Doctor today. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thanks Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, uh, Ewan, you're thank, welcome. Thank you for and your we'll, work we'll, and on behalf of your patients and patients who you haven't met, and please keep it up. God bless you. And we'll be back with his friend, Dr. Wes Ely, after the break. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, if you're just joining us from the studios of Redeemer Radio. Uh, the second part of our showtime, we're joined by Dr. Wesley Ely, who is a Tulane and Wake Forest trained professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. And he, he has a subspecialty training in pulmonary and critical care medicine. Now, relevant to our discussions tonight, Dr. Ely's research is focused on improving the care and the outcomes of critically ill patients with ICU-acquired brain disease. Among other things, Dr. Ely is a CMA, Catholic Medical Association, Medical Guild president in the great city of Nashville, Tennessee. So, Wes, thanks for joining us on Dr. Doctor. It's my privilege. I'm so glad to be here to talk about a topic which is really emerging as a major secular uh, point of discussion and argument around the world. And so I think it's very timely. Yeah, we couldn't agree more. Wes, uh, the article that spurred this was Voluntary Euthanasia in Organ Donation. We've discussed it earlier in the show. What do you see as the most important takeaways from this article, this editorial? I think the most important takeaways here are that this will very likely be abused in terms of people being pushed to have end of life occur earlier if they are being well pushed in the direction of donating organs to other people. And when somebody unilaterally wants to do that and give up their organs, that may be their preference. But in other circumstances, people who are sick will be uh, taken advantage of. And I, I really worry about those who are less able to communicate their their wishes, those who uh, can't speak for themselves, et cetera. And so I think it's just a a situation ripe for abuse. So this, to some people, those who would be in favor of organ donation through voluntary euthanasia would say, those are just hypotheticals, theoreticals. You've never seen anything in practice that would lead you to believe that, or have you? Well, I think we already have seen examples of, I, I was told last week when I was in Sweden, actually, that uh, a doctor was very excited that they were adjusting their policies to allow organ donation uh, for euthanasia patients in the hospitals there. And they they said this with 100% excitement, and isn't this avant-garde, aren't we on the cutting edge to get these organs from these patients who are undergoing euthanasia? And I was just speechless. I was agape. So what argument, if you had a chance to sit down with these physicians or anybody who wondered why you disagreed with them, what reasons would you give them for disagreeing? And perhaps our listeners can learn from this so they can share it with their friends. Uh, the main reason, I, I think it's, it's just extremely important to think about people who the dichotomy between the highly educated and those who can express themselves and have a 
a clear track, a venue by which to get their, their wishes met, that, you know, those people might say, look, I, I've led my life, I've had everything go right in my life, and I'd like to give my organs up, and I, I, I'm going to go ahead and go through euthanasia and give my organs up, versus once that's approved, people saying, well, gosh, there's all these other people over here that we could get their organs too if we could just get them to be euthanized as well. And then you start to be very, very heavy on the, you know, your life is kind of over. It's not really any longer worth living, but you could do something for this person over here if you were to give them your kidneys and your heart and your lungs. And that is incredibly dangerous way of thinking. Would you say that's treating a person as an object, as a means to an end, okay. instead of an end of themselves? Yeah, a collection of objects called organs, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely objectifying their circumstance. I, I'm taken back to something that uh, this is a, a non-religious example, but if you just go back to the philosopher Kant and you think about what Kant wrote in, uh, in, in his Metaphysics of Morals, he wrote, whatever has a price can be replaced. So some, once you place a price on something, it can be replaced. Whatever is above all price, therefore admits no equivalent, and it has dignity. Huh. So the whole of the, the whole, it's a beautiful example. The whole of a human being is above all price. It is priceless, and therefore life has dignity. But when you divide the person up into individual organs that you can place a price on, everything gets extremely confusing. And then, therefore, you can – one organ can be replaced by another organ, and an organ can be replaced by money. Yes, and through a medium of exchange. Mm. Through a market. And, you know, when right. I hear voluntary euthanasia, it's just the way my brain works. The first thing I think of is involuntary euthanasia. And where, where would that line stop? How would that line be drawn? And who would police the crossing or not crossing of that line? So maybe – Maybe those who are incarcerated, maybe we would decide that their life really has minimal value. Let's take their organs. I mean, they're going to die in prison anyway, right? Hey, how, how do we ever stop that once that argument begins? That's a, that is an extremely uh, dangerous situation. Let me give you a few facts about this that many people are unaware of. In the countries that have long approved euthanasia, such as Belgium, the Netherlands, and now Canada, which is rapidly, bypassing, rapidly passing up, the data on Netherlands and Belgium, by the way, a very aggressive euthanasia program there. In those countries um, that, that have physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia, 99% of the deaths which have physicians involved in the deaths, actively involved in the deaths, are euthanasia, not physician-assisted suicide. Wow. So physician-assisted suicide is only 1%, and that means, doctor, I'd like to have you write me a prescription I will take it home, and I would write that prescription. They take it home, and they may never use it. That's physician-assisted suicide. It's an outpatient situation. Right. A scheduled inpatient death is euthanasia, and 99% is euthanasia. Now, one more fact, and I'll stop talking on this, on this and, you, <laughs> and you get your feedback. Um, you get this. In the New England Journal in 2015, uh, Kenneth Schember published data. This is in the New England Journal, the highest journal in the land, 27% of all euthanasia is involuntary <gasps> in one region of Flanders, Belgium. Flanders, Belgium, a region of Belgium, is 27% of all the documented cases of euthanasia were involuntary, meaning that the doctors wrote on the surveys that, that they had done, that this death was, was the patient who didn't ask for it. Is that legal there? No, it's illegal. It's against the law. But they did it that's anyway. Happening. That's happening. And, oh. and it, it, it's well documented, and some very famous physicians have said that this is, uh, this is what we do, and it's, it's important, and we think it's right. That is a clear situation where somebody is making a judgment call that one person's life is, worth, is more valuable than another. And, and the main thing that is driving – there are two main things driving that. One of them is allowing for the fact that that once somebody is diseased, they are less valuable than they would have been when they were healthy. Are they and less I want to valuable? Say very clear, yeah, I want to say very clearly, the human being is always priceless, beyond value, like Kant brought up. Uh, no matter with disease, without disease, disability, no disability, 
and no amount of disease ever reduces an iota, the infinite, the infinite value of a human life. Well, interestingly, we're all suffering from this terminal disease called life, aren't we? <laughs> and so yeah. if, if we define someone's value based on their abilities, whether they're athletic abilities or just physiologic abilities, um, we've defined ourselves sort of out of existence, it would seem. Um, it's, it's so distasteful on so many levels, it's hard to organize your thoughts. I mean, I just think of, I think of myself standing in front of a patient and I say, I'm a, I'm a doctor, I'm, I'm here to help. I'm, I'm here to help with, with your disease and I'll stand with you no matter what happens. I may not even know the right answers, but I'll stand with you. But the, the yeah. euthanasia relationship, that's not the doctor-patient relationship that we all signed up for, it, it would seem. See, now, let's talk for just a minute, if you don't mind, about, about what is behind the decision here, because there are some very, very good people that I know who are so in favor of euthanasia. And I, I just want to bring up three words, uh, beneficence, benevolence, and autonomy. Mm. Uh, if, if I tell you, look, it's my right to do this. I, I have this autonomy. Well, that is true, but, that, but autonomy is only one of many bioethical principles, and it doesn't supersede automatically other bioethical principles like non-maleficence, justice, truthfulness, dignity, stewardship. So one of the things the secular world is getting very out of kilter on is placing autonomy as the kingpin of all bioethical principles, and that's, that's really driving this euthanasia uh, uh, movement. You know what, Wes? This reminds me of... of uh a religious principle, and that's the term heresy. And and one thing that Chesterton said heresy was is when you take one aspect of the truth and make it all of the truth. Mm. And it sounds Perfect. like that's yeah, what we're, that. we're doing in the secular world. We're taking one thing that is true and good, autonomy, and making it everything to the exclusion of others. That's a really good, clear way you just, I think, gave me and our listeners to think about this. Now, now the other two words I brought up were, were benevolence and beneficence. So um, as physicians and other healthcare professionals, it, it, I pose the question, is it beneficent to deliberately cause a patient's death? In other words, is it a good? Is, bene- For people yeah, that yeah, don't know the, the term. Is, is, bene- yeah, benevolence is to wish a good. Hmm. Beneficence is to actually do a good. Wishing so I think that people are willing, they're wanting a, to do a good for another. That's benevolent. But it's not actually beneficent. You're not actually doing a good if you willfully intend the death of another. And that, that's the distinction uh, between the two, I think, that, that we're getting off, off track on. You know, what's interesting and, and easy to a degree, I think, for uh, Catholic listeners is we, we value life above everything else. But it's a difficult conversation, isn't it, for those who don't share that value because our tools are, are taken away from us in the argument, in the discussion. We... It's hard for me to talk to someone who doesn't have the same value for life that I do. But, Wes, when you were talking along these lines, I actually thought of Dr. Seuss. First thing that came to my mind <laughs> was Horton. You know, a person's a person, no matter how small or how sick. Perfect. Or how sick. <laughs> I mean, you know, Theodore Geisel it. got it right. <laughs> he did. He totally got it right. And, and you know, um, what, one of the things I'd like to emphasize uh, is that when somebody is that sick, and I, as, as their physician, are with them and they're so in the pits of depression and my life is over and why am I even here anymore? And I've had people ask me this question. I wrote a, I wrote a piece in CNN.org people can find here about what, what I, how I approached it when somebody asked me to kill, kill him. And, you know, he didn't see value in his life anymore, but remember, you know, even what Nietzsche said, uh, you know, if a man has a, a why, why to live, yes. a why he'll he find get by a with almost any how. Yes. And, and that's so beautiful. We have to remember to help somebody remember their why. Mm. That's really beautiful. And, and so how do you help people find their why, find that value inside them, even when they're in the, the pits of depression near the end of life? Mr. Smith, I'm going to sit down and just talk to you. Let's forget about your illness for a minute. Who are you? Tell me about yourself. What did you do in life? What are your hobbies? And let that conversation emerge into a beautiful sharing of of, of personal traits and personality preferences and, and what made me tick. In this case, in the CNN piece, it was this guy was an actor 
and he loved Shakespeare. And my mom directed Shakespeare. And so, you know, we, we talked about Portia from Merchant of Venice and the quality oh. of mercy is not strained. And <laughs> yes. it was so much fun and we got into it. And then I realized, oh, wait a minute, I've got a nurse over here who is an actor, an actor as well, but she's <laughs> depressed. And she came and talked to him. And then he helped her. And he next day he said, you know, Doc, I helped Christine and I made her realize who she was and I helped her through a couple of problems. I'm actually still serving other people while I'm here. I don't want to die anymore. Don't kill me. I'm I'm wrong. I retract my request. That's beautiful. That is so wonderful. Yes, everybody has a purpose and a meaning in their life till the end. We we, we have to remember that as healthcare professionals. And when we buy in to this concept that they're no longer valuable, their life is no longer valuable, we are being duped big time. And you taught me something on a previous interview we did with you on the show. I've actually used it in several talks I've given, and, and that's your whole play on the word matter. Not, not what's the matter with the patient, but what matters most to the patient. I've just found that so incredibly useful with patients and with other people. And, and I continue to use that all the time because it helps me. I, I, I'm, I even get drawn into thinking, what are the diseases this patient has? What's the matter with the patient? And I constantly remind myself to look at the family and the patient and say, it's not what's the matter with dad, but what matters to dad? And that helps us to help dad find his why again. Yes. Well, finding your why, that's really beautiful. So, Wes, I'm guessing that you probably have some conversations with colleagues who disagree with you. Uh, help us and our listeners understand what are those conversations like? So probably well-intentioned physicians who don't see our, our perspective on this, what are those interactions like? They get very heated, and I think that that passion that brings the heat is something that I, I like to embrace in the conversation. And I, I don't try and approach this from a religious standpoint because – you really can't bring that into an argument with a, with an atheist physician, for example. That's one of the reasons I like to use a, a Nietzsche, who was an, <laughs> you know, yes. obviously a, an atheist. Mm. Um, and, and the other thing is that they'll say things like, you know, if your dog was suffering like this, uh, would, wouldn't, you wouldn't keep them alive. You, you might put them down. And my first reaction to that is, look, that's right off the bat, so far off track, because we are not dogs. You know, we, we are not dogs. We have a value that is above price. And, and first of all, I didn't give my patient their life. So if I didn't give my patient their life, how can I be the one to take it? Mm. And even if they're not religious, they, they know that I didn't give them their life, nor did the patient give them their life. So I, I try to use another example, Steve Jobs. I don't really know what Steve Jobs' um, religious preferences or, or, or values were, but I do... I do, all of us, many of us watch the movie about Steve Jobs. And what, if, when you do watch that movie, you realize that he never got out from under the circumstances of his birth. It haunted him his whole life that not one, but his original birth parents and then his first adopted parents gave him up. Hmm. And that really affected him. And I, I, I come back to the idea that our life is framed at the beginning and the end by the two most important moments of our life. It's why in the Hail Mary we say, now and at the time of death, Yes, of course. And, and what do you want those two picture frames to look like? Well, you couldn't control the circumstances of your birth, but you can affect to some degree, sometimes, aspects of that picture frame of your death, especially if you're making that picture frame be a voluntary kill-me situation. So I, I, I think about that a lot when I'm just with, with people and about my own self. Well, that's fascinating. As I listen to you describe that, I think of some of the images of uh, St. John Paul II and his suffering. And, you know, one could have argued his suffering should be ended. It's so terrible to see. But on the other hand, I think most of us were moved by how he he didn't hide his suffering or the indignity of it. In fact, he, he really just put it out there to say suffering can have value. Uh, and even a life that's broken and frail and, and fragile it still has value, and it still has meaningful uh, contributions, so to speak. Uh, Wes, do you think that here in the United States, we have to fear the coming of voluntary euthanasia? Uh, absolutely. Mm. I, I completely do. 
Um, I think that this is probably going to happen. I think that we're up uh, in the future there. It's going to, we're fighting right now the votes at, at, at the American Medical Association and the World Medical Association, but the lobby is getting stronger and stronger. And, um, you know, one of the things, back to the autonomy piece, and I, I do, you asked me about my, my conversations with physicians. Yes. The physician will ask me, look, I don't even support euthanasia, but if the patient comes to me and says, I want this, how can I not give them what they want? And I try to teach them from Pellegrino. You know, Edmund Pellegrino, one of the greatest bioethicists of the 20th century. Yes. And Pellegrino wrote about the physician-patient relationship, and, and he published this in, in JAMA and also in the, in, in the American College of, of Physicians and Surgeons in Canada even. I uh, said, this is a reciprocal relationship. It's not like that automatically when the patient and the physician are in conflict, the patient's wishes automatically trump the physician's. Uh, we have to realize that we are in a there's a covenant between the patient and the physician, and we have to navigate that covenant. That is beautiful. In fact, <laughs> you might find it humorous to know in a talk I gave at Notre Dame earlier this month, I quoted both you and your response to the New England Journal of Medicine article by Emmanuel Stahl and Pellegrino on that very subject. So <laughs> you are just so, so affirming of, of this doctor here. But yes, the mutually reciprocal covenant relationship. I wish we could go on. We're near the end. What final thoughts, Wes, would you like to leave with our listeners on this topic? Let's lead with two thoughts. One is let's, 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 let's lead with Fulton Sheen. Fulton Sheen <laughs> yes. taught it's wrong is wrong even if everybody's wrong. Right is right even if nobody's right. That's yes. beautiful. Let's remember that. And then the last thing is empathy is not the same as sympathy. We made a distinction between benevolence and beneficence. Remember that sympathy is feeling sorry for someone Empathy, as you indicated earlier, I want to sit with you. Uh, empathy is feeling with someone. And what we need here is empathy. It's not a distant feeling. It's, it's d- diving down deep in with the person and helping them find their why. And if you do that, that will make all the difference. So that, that's my wish for the listener to, to take home with them. Wes Ely, critical care doctor extraordinaire from Nashville. Thank you for being with us on Dr. Doctor. My, my privilege. Thank you so much. Good night. We'll be back with more after the break. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor. And you know, it's time now, Tom, because I know people are anxious to hear the answer to the medical trivia <clears throat> question. Oh, yes, I am too. I hope I can remember it. Well, I've got the question here. Name the next disease after smallpox that will likely be eradicated from planet Earth. Is it measles, mumps, rubella, polio, or guinea worm disease? And I'll give you a hint. This particular disease has decreased from 3.5 million cases 30 years ago to 30 cases a year ago without a vaccine. If you chose the last option, guinea worm disease, you would be right. So, Chris, you probably haven't treated a case of guinea worm disease this year. Not recently. No. no. I, I never have, but it was one of those things we had to learn in dermatology. The, the medical term is dracunculiasis, and I won't try to say that again. But it's a disease of um, little uh, parasites called roundworms of... Uh, this genus Dracunculus. And they are found in standing water and now just in several African countries, South Sudan, Mali, Chad, and Ethiopia. And the way that this has been nearly eradicated, two simple behavioral changes. Don't drink standing water. Don't drink standing water. (laughs) And when this parasite grows and develops into a worm in your body, it tries to find a way out of the body. So think the movie Alien, <laughs> kind of like that, except what you've got in you is not whatever came out of Sigourney Weaver's midsection. 
Was she the one? I didn't see the movie. I'm not into those. But anyway, it's a, a three-foot-long worm that gradually tries to come out of your body. And when it's in the muscles and the skin causes incredible pain, you have to slowly unwind it out. So what a lot of people do to get the worm out is they go to standing water to bring the worm out, and therefore it releases more eggs that can infect more people. Mm. So when they're treating themselves, they have them just get like a bucket of water that they will pour somewhere that nobody will drink it or use it. And through this simple behavioral change, a second disease may be eradicated from our planet. So it's a wonderful Wonderful thing. And actually, the foundation most at the forefront of this is actually one founded by former President Jimmy Carter. His foundation has been at the forefront of eradicating guinea worm disease. So I like to give credit where credit is due. Well, Tom, I don't think there's a more exciting way that we could end another episode of Dr. Doctor than to talk about worms exiting people's bodies. Chris, if you can't think of anything more exciting, (laughs) we need to have a long talk. No, uh... And we, we encourage people uh, to let other people know about Dr. Doctor and to try to listen, please, on iTunes Podcast because they have a place where you can leave uh, a review. And the more good reviews we get, the more likely it will come up in searches. Absolutely. And RedeemerRadio.com if you want to listen live uh, to any of the programming on Redeemer Radio, but most especially to our point, pick up our podcast and listen faithfully and pass it on to your friends. Well, thanks for listening to yet another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studio of Redeemer Radio. If you'd like more information on the Catholic Medical Association, find us on our website, cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. And Tom, as you pointed out, listen to us on iTunes podcast and leave a review. More positive reviews means more people will get a chance to hear our podcast. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, inviting you to tune in next week for your next dose of Dr. Doctor, where we'll be imagining a world without Catholic doctors with the help of author Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com doctor.